The Trek Files, Season 7, Episode 9, Gene Roddenberry, Homeward Bound, July 1986. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome back, Star Trek fans. Hey, all you Star Trek historians out there. Yes, you canonistas, I say that lovingly, as always. Even you tech heads, I think you're going to pick up some good stuff today. Basically, all of you Trekophiles, spelled with an F, we are back with another new guest for the show, but it's someone who is certainly no stranger to Star Trek and should be no stranger to you. As always, thanks for joining us this week. If you are new to the Trek Files, you know... You can catch us in many places, but our HQ is right there on Facebook at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. If you haven't already, check out our documents of the week because we're actually all about real Trek files. We're the only podcast with paperwork or with homework. So check that out as you're looking there and get ready for this week's guest. Here is an audio sample first, but hang on. We'll be right back. Star Trek stories are about something. They aren't inane, running around with sound and fury and bang-bang car chases, things that add to nothing. One of our very, very early ones, the Horta story, The Devil in the Dark, made a very strong statement that just because something is ugly doesn't mean it is bad or dangerous. Every episode makes a statement of some sort, and people are hungry for statements. Yes. Yes, they are hungry for statements. That's the same as it is uh, now, as it ever was with the early days of Star Trek uh, in the 60s, in the first wave of fandom. And the second wave of fandom. I was a rerun baby, as, as I often say. And our guest today is someone who goes back that far. I know because when I was first venturing into the professional realm, he was too <laughs> in this business. Ian Spelling, who many of you know for years, years just he was the uh, editor at StarTrek.com for ages. He's now working with Hero Collector, uh, working and publicizing their books. But what's very cool right now is... He's worked for years with his interviews in Starlog and in, uh, in the, all the official magazines, as well as online. And now he's got a book himself of the 55 years of the original series. So, Ian, it's so great to have you on with us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And it's about time. You're right. We have had parallel careers and been friends for... I don't know, 30 something years and we've never done something like this. There were many, many years that your work was online at StarTrek.com and it would say, by the Star Trek.com staff because it gets old looking like what they only have one guy writing stuff for them which was not true but that's the perception I know that because I was a one man managing editor at a weekly paper and if my name was on everything I wrote it would look ridiculous so but I people people lose track about how many words you've spewed out and how many people that means you've talked to over the years so I'm glad to see your name on this book which is awesome there was a reason why it said Star Trek.com staff instead of by Ian Spelling, and that was simply they wanted it to be about Star Trek, not about me mm -hmm. uh, or the editor. So for a while, it wasn't even public knowledge that I was the editor. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't the world's secret, uh, but it was not mentioned. And then, uh, oddly enough, my boss's boss mentioned it from the stage 
at uh, one of the big Star Trek conventions and the cat was out of the bag. And from there, I was able to say I was the editor. But still, it said Star Trek.com staff on every on every article. Well, we go. We had this this document this week, and yes, it's a, it's we've got the published pages from Starlog way back in uh, 1985, I think. Uh, but when I first met you, you I knew of you because I was doing the companion by that mm-hmm. time. Uh, had been doing my own working before that, but I knew you had you were busting out with something which was incredible, which was your Star Trek syndicated column. In, in several newspapers. I was like, whoa, this is interesting. And so I think I, I interviewed you even to have some comments and get some factoids as a marker of a barometer right. of where Star Trek had exploded to. Look, look, it's supporting somebody with a syndicated column. And that's where I, I remember that. But this piece in Starlog predates that. And yes. we've got it in the files because the the Roddenberry files have copies of all of you know all the licensed everything's and interviews with Gene are in there. Sometimes they're in a rougher form. <laughs> then we've got the published pages here, which is great. But you were telling me the story about this. Um, th- yeah, yeah. Trying. This is because this was very early in your career, and it's just fascinating. I, I love this story. I, I was a kid going to college, and I wanted to do interviews. I started to get into journalism. I was going to conventions, I'd been to a handful, and I realized you could get the talent at the hotel. So George Takei, I would call, would you put me through to Mr. Takei's room? Sure, put me through. <laughs> George, my name's Ian Spelling, I'm with the Albany Student Press, would you do an interview with me? Student, <laughs> yes. Albany Student Press, the ask. I said, he said yes, and we met and we did an interview. Jimmy Dewan did an interview with me, Mark Leonard did an interview with me, Walter Koenig did an interview with me. And it was great. And then I was at a con in New York in person, and I met Majel and did the same thing. She sat and did an interview right there. I met Gene, who said he didn't have time to talk, but he would love to. Handed me his business card and said, call my assistant and she'll arrange it. Again, it's a long story, Larry, but the short version is the assistant set the interview up. And then when it was almost time to do it, I was out of my suite. Gene Roddenberry called the front desk of SUNY Albany tracked me down in my suite to say, and got my roommate and said, leave me in a message that Gene Roddenberry called. Here's my number. Some director died. I have to go to his funeral. Tell him to call me and we'll reschedule the interview. So all of a sudden this was Roddenberry's house number, not his home office number for lack of a better phrase. And the next thing I know, um, I call and Gene picks up and he says, let me call you back so your college paper isn't paying for the call because back in 1985 or whatever the year was, it was like a dollar a minute to call from Albany to California. So, I mean, I literally stepped in it. And the killer is he gave me this great almost hour long interview. And at the end, he said, this was great. We should do it again tomorrow. So we had another <laughs> call, which I didn't record. I had like another half hour, 40 minutes. I, yeah. I wanted to talk about science fiction and art and poetry and i couldn't tell you what he said but i remember him saying these are the things i want to talk about and sure enough we had a whole other conversation where he called me at my college paper anyway long story short i sold this and uh with majel to starlog and they were the first star trek pieces that i ever did for starlog and that the wheels and you said the the third overall You'd sold two. I did Tawny Welsh for Cocoon, and I did James <laughs> Remar for Clan of the Cave Bear. All right. Well, Gene, if you're number three, you just have to try harder. 
Um, <laughs> no, I mean you were racing through that story, but it's look at look at what it says about and let's and as we often do here, this is a snapshot in time. So this is eighty four, eighty five ish. Yeah, and so look what's happened. So uh, the motion pictures, Wrathicon uh, um, and and Search for Spock have happened, and and uh, Voyage Home is the, the one with the whales is on the way. But as far as Gene goes, and we get into the get into the actual interview. Now, at the time, you're a Trek fan, and you do Gene, so mm -hmm. th there's the fanboy in you that's excited to make this happen, and probably like kind of in shock that, like you were saying there, you zip through it. But the idea that Gene is making all this effort to get to you and get back to you and leaving messages and with roommates. I don't roommates. understand what he saw in me or why or what the connection was. And years later, I told Majel this story. And she said, Ian, I can't tell you what that was. She said, I, you know, I know he was a, a magnanimous guy and, and tried to support young journalists and whatnot, but that's crazy. <laughs> she, she had no idea why he did what he did. And I, I don't either, but obviously I'm forever grateful. Yeah. Well, this is, this is 8045. So this is, he's about to come out of the wilderness. He's still got another year or two or three to go before the next generation hits and then of course his health declines just a couple of years into that and then and then he's passed here six years late six seven years later from the time of this interview so this is late stage gene but not as late as it gets there's still a couple more layers to go but it's interesting we had uh, fred bronson who wound up with two or three writing credits but when he was a student journalist at the valley state college the northridge paper back in the 60s he talked to gene during the, the original series like second season no first season because Gene was talking about this great time show we're doing, which wound up being Cineager Forever. So it's like Gene, he's obviously open to talking to student journalists, and I guess that was part, even back then, and that was part of his, you know, nurturing. But d at the time, I mean, did you did you rescan this interview to look at it with 30 years of hindsight or whatever here? Because at the time, I don't know if you were just excited to talk to Gene, and it was just a moment in its moment. I'm looking at it now and realizing that this is in that great pivot that he had, you know, he had the producing years and then the college tour, let's get a revival going, the guru years, and then he got demoted and he's trying to find the place publicly and in his own mind where he can still be Mr. Star Trek, but, you know, I've got, we have people doing the movies for me now, which is the tone here. You know, he's right. he's talking, I know I love how he never mentions Harv or, or even Nick Meyer by name. Right, he says them. I send them memos mm -hmm. and suggestions and they listen to some and they don't listen to others. Yeah. Now, at the time, do you remember that striking you as, that's just Gene talking and it's only now that you are, what was your thinking at the time or reaction? You know what? The internet wasn't there. The history hadn't happened mm -hmm. yet. This was history in the making. Mm -hmm. It hadn't happened yet. He hadn't reconnected really with the the nuts and bolts of the franchise as he soon would with Next Generation. So I, you know, I don't even think this was Next Gen was on the radar yet when this interview. No, happened. no, no. It was two, three years away, right? Probably. Well, probably closer to a year. It really wasn't all that far away where the idea started to percolate and all of that. But um, yeah, at the time. You know, he was he was thriving on his reputation as the man who had created Star Trek and there was pent up demand for it. But all there were were the films. And it was fairly common knowledge that he wasn't hands on anymore with the films. So what he said in there rang very accurate to me about, you know, he's sending memos and they listen to some and they don't to others. And he had to trust other people to you know steer the creation. 
And then it li- literally came to that later with Rick Berman running the show. You know, he handed it Rick. Yeah, so I'm I'm just curious if if like we said, he didn't mention Harv by name here, and yeah. you were you were you were cognizant of that. Did it did it strike you then that oh, this is him navigating this tricky you know diplomatic personal ego path? Uh, it probably did a little bit. It was nothing at the time I would challenge him on. Uh, because it, I, I was writing it for my college newspaper. I wasn't doing an expose on where he was right, in the right. realm at that time. So, you know, if I were writing, if I knew I was writing this for Starlog, I would have, the question would have been, how much more do you want to be involved in Star Trek going forward? But that's not a question as a college kid who was thrilled to interview Gene Roddenberry, would ask in 1985. Right, right. It's a good point, Larry. It's a very good point. And it also falls in that realm. You know, a year later, it would have been a different conversation. Right. Well, I mean, the next generation, the 20th anniversary, the success of Star Trek IV eventually, all of that was, you know, and the station's demanding something besides these 79, 80 hours over and over and over again. And all the, and the you know, all that hitting critical mass that led to next generation. And people figuring out how to redefine the landscape and how to move forward and not worry about recasting or rebooting. We'll just, you know, we'll have this paradigm of going forward in time with adventures. And, and all that was still a couple years away. So at the time, there's still a little bit of loggerheads. And he's, you know, and, he, and he, in this interview, he, as all good producers do, talk about all the other projects they're going to do or that they have in the mind to do that sounded fine in the 70s but i think after specter about you know his horror movie with majel uh and others in the lead um that was like 76 77 and i don't know how many active productions he wound after the experience of the motion picture was was draining and then maybe what his brand was by then around town around hollywood i don't know that he really had anything i think by then he was it was all lecture circuit and you know, writing forwards and books and, and, and palling with his science and author friends and all that. I don't really know what he actively was trying to promote as a production. So, and, and I don't think there was a lot, but a lot, you know, there were ideas and those ended up being Andromeda. Right. Some of the other stuff later. Right. But that, that was literally the old school, you know, Woody Allen writing ideas on matchbooks. <laughs> out of a draw and making a movie. I mean, Mitchell found these papers in his draws, right? Right. So he was trying to be creative. And do more, but yeah, I don't know at the time that you get a whole lot going. Yeah, but I, but again, it was a slower. It was a, it was a simpler time pre-internet, yeah. as you said, and we coasted along. You know, when the nuggets of Star Trek came from ten-minute bits on Entertainment Tonight. I mean, mm-hmm. that was the fastest way fans got news of us. So a lot of it, we were coasting along on. You know, we didn't. We weren't as savvy, like you said. Those in the know were keeping up. Knew that Gene was in a role of giving memos and script notes that might or might not be taken, depending on how much of a, you know, fit he wanted to throw, at the time, how loud he wanted to get about it. But that's really where he was. But I don't know that the great unwashed fandom out there, even those uh, who stayed close to things, didn't know where they knew that was the stage, but they didn't know what that looked like, much right. less what else he was doing on the side. So anyway, but this it rang as a the whole piece rings as a very busy producer. What's interesting though is. He and Leonard were not estranged, but weren't on the best of terms. But he's very lavish here in his praise. Well, he says, "I'm sure he'll do better on four, which 
<laughs> which I was like, mm, okay. I mean, I don't know. As you, I mean, did you look through this again? Did you see oh, yeah. anything? Yeah, what else it. jumps out at you from reading your own words? From uh, Basically, the, uh, the whole thing about Ricardo Montalban saved their bacon. Uh, on Star Trek too, because he there were a lot of things in the movie that he wouldn't have done the way they were done, and that he thought went against the Star Trek philosophy and ethos that he had created. But he thought that Monkelbon was so superb in the role that that superseded any issues with it and did pave the way for three. So yeah, I think as I, I think what you said was kind of perceptive was look, bottom line, he maybe he was on the outskirts of the day-to-day of Star Trek, but he had a very vested interest in people still liking the franchise and people wanting more. And uh, I don't think he could badmouth things he didn't like too much publicly. So in the day, the word didn't exist. But if you read this, there are little bits of him throwing shade. (laughs) Yes, yes. The throwing shade didn't exist. If you read this closely... Between the lines, there are little bits where, I mean, he's fully complimentary uh, towards a lot of things, but it's it's almost kind of like, you know. It, it, Our you amateurs are, have come far, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. Where, where, well, it's kind of like an ex-wife remarried, and he's talking about, you know, oh, she's moved on without me, but, you know, our kids are still there, and I still have an influence on the kids, and I'm still their dad. And that's, yes. a little bit of, that's a little bit of this. That is, that's a great, yeah, that's a great, that's a great vibe to it. You know, as he's walking a line between cheerleading the franchise, which ultimately feeds him, and is his baby, but he's not actively hands-on, but he's sending some hell of a notes, you know, see, I mean, but he, yeah, so he's, he's not, yeah, he's, he's really walking a line to, to praise the big picture, but let's keep this other in check here, and maybe, you know, let's, let's keep some perspective about this. These, hey, these kids can steer. And part of it is they're going to steer with or without him. So he, he doesn't want to do anything to rock the boat too hard that they'll literally do it without him. Because Gene's big leverage, and this is why he was involved, you know, they could have paid him his 5% or whatever and sent him, patted him on the head and sent him off. But Gene would not go quietly into the night because Star Trek was his baby. And even after he was you know, demoted to executive consultant, so to speak, he pushed that envelope farther than any probably franchise creator demoted for a later, you know, uh, how many other people hung around to really keep, you know, sending notes and banging on the door the way, especially in those days that, that Gene has. So it was a, it was a, it was a balancing act to do, but part of that was also for the public perception of him. And he, if he hadn't kept up that leverage, he wouldn't have, I mean, he had to earn it. Right. So he's, so everything that they're having to listen to him about is what he's done by saying, I have the fans, don't don't go too far out of line here, or I will, basically, I'll sick the fans on you. <laughs> Maybe. And look, you know, Paramount was smart enough to uh, show him the necessary respect mm-hmm. as well. I mean, that was a two-way street. You know, he knew not to rock the boat too much, probably, and Paramount, you know, knew that this was the creator, and to a lot of people, he was, the, you know, the great bird of the galaxy, and... Um, they, the, the fans wanted the studio to show the creator the necessary respect. So definitely a two-way street right. in terms of people towing a line, you know, walking a fine line. And still, and that's the leverage he had when it came down to the next generation negotiations. He could have been the guy at home they sent scripts to, but he actually they were working that way. And he stood up and said, "No, I think I'll come back and 
have a hand in this. And, and they, the, the, Klingon, the post-Klingon Federation war format that Greg Strangis had worked on went out the window, and the next generation that we know of, that with him involved in the beginning, is what we got. Well, listen, this is, this is such a great snapshot in time, not just for Gene, but for you, if this was your first Star Trek interview and so early in the career. And then all these years later, working with Starlog and, and the, 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 the Titan magazine over the years and StarTrek.com. But I'm just I say, I'm thrilled to see you front and center with a byline on a book. Yeah. So t- so how did how did uh, a celebration come together? Tell tell us about this is uh, 55 years the original series. Obviously we talk about the franchise being 55 years, but that's because of the original series. So just a, how about a nugget of I mean we say it's the original series. What's cool about this? Why do we need this one besides all the other books we've got already? I'll answer the first question and then I'll tell you why it's a unique book. The the what happened was StarTrek.com, my time there they they shifted to Los Angeles and and uh changed up the site so they brought in somebody new and you know all good things as they say and i had a great time it was the best gig i ever had and then i was freelance writing as i always have and uh all of a sudden you know journalism is a a nightmare of a business to be in uh these days and i started to put on my old pr hat public relations hat again and i was connected with hero collector which is a division of eagle moss um, which is the company that does the great Star Trek ship models. Right. And they asked me to do the PR for the books. And I was doing the PR for the books. And then one of the books was Star Trek Voyager, a celebration. Uh, and so they had created the, the concept, the formula, the format uh, for that style of book that they wanted to do. And Ben Robinson, who worked on that book and had in that book, emails me and says, hey, we're going to do another one. I don't have time to do it myself. And what do you think? Do you want to co-write it with me? And I'm not exaggerating, Larry, when I tell you that ended up being pretty much a 50-50 split. If you look at the 256 pages or whatever the final number is, 260 pages, it's literally 50-50, which was very cool. And uh, what is different about the book, the the concept of the book, uh, and Ben is the one who coined this, he kind of wanted it to be a living convention. He wanted it to be the experience of the show that if you were at a convention that covered everything, this book covers it all. The other thing was to find to find a way in for faint, longtime fans where it would be something fresh and for new fans where it would be a good guide or, or a primer for them. So it's different from, just for argument's sake, B. Joe's concordance. It's different from any of the other many fabulous Star Trek books uh, that have been done. It's different from any of the magazines as well, in the sense that it's all of that put into one. Take take everything that's been done, whip it into a blender, and put you know Ben and I <laughs> as the writers, and then it's kind of what you got. That was the idea, was let's talk about the creation of the show, those earliest memos, Star Trek is from, from Gene. Let's talk about the pilot. Let's talk about the second pilot. And then Ben and I kind of brainstormed and said, what stories haven't been told? Who hasn't been interviewed before? Who's still alive? Okay. So yes. that was, yeah, that's a challenge in and of itself. So we tracked down. He found one of the original editors on the show. Uh, I tracked down Joe Diagosta, the original casting director. You tracked down April Tatro. Yes. Okay. I wanted her in the book. 
you cool. I believe, only ever had her on your podcast. Mm -hmm. I don't think there had ever been a print interview with her yet. So we have what you could argue is the first print interview. And I don't know if you've read that chapter in the book, but I fully credit you as the-, the And we the thank you, yeah. The students who tracked her down, <laughs> and it's a great story. And you know, she's even part of her telling of, you are even part of her telling oh, of Oh, cool, this. okay, yeah. Um, so there's all sorts of stuff like that in there that's brand new. Uh, and where I couldn't find people, like um, I, I spoke to uh, the children of other people. Uh, I, I spoke to Jeffrey Hunter's son, who told this unbelievable story about, you know, being in a car with his dad and his dad telling him about the Star Trek script. How cool is that? We, we tried to get stories we hadn't heard a million times. Well, listen, uh, it's coming September 21st. Uh, it will be out after that. Another great Eagle. We, yeah, Eagle Moss, the, uh, the ship company that got into books and we're all, <laughs> all glad for it. So thank you, Ben. But thank you, Ian. I'm, and again, I'm so excited to see, not that you've not had your name out there for years, but having you on a hardcover here is, uh, is long overdue. Uh, but this is awesome. I, you know, this is, and this has been long overdue having you on the Trek files. Um, you know I need to, to find me. I'm happy to come back. I know. I know where you. I know where you uh, reside, virtually and uh, physically. So, uh, we need to find some documents worthy of your expertise, and then we'll have you back if you'll come. Absolutely, I'd love to. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Hey, all of our documents and your chance to comment are available at Facebook.com/slash/TheTrekFiles. Now, for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47. That's me at LarryNemacek.com. And hey, check out all the Trek Files swag and shirts at the Trekland shop at tpublic.com slash stores slash Trekland hyphen shop. Trek well, everybody. Peace and love, as Ringo would say. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.